Welcome to the Vineyard Cleveland podcast. We hope you enjoy this message. For further information and other resources, please visit vineyardcleveland.org. C.S. Lewis said that joy is the serious business of heaven. Uh, When we talk about joy and we talk about God with us, joy is the serious business of heaven because God is the most joyful being on the planet. A lot of times we don't think about God that way, but I wanted us to soak in this Dallas Willard quote. It's a little bit lengthy. You don't have to do anything. The words aren't going to be on the screen. Dallas Willard wrote The Celebration of Discipline, really wonderful author, and he's talking about God as the most joyous being in the universe, and this really lit my heart and my mind up this week. He says this, central to the understanding and proclamation of the Christian gospel today is a revisioning of what God's own life is like and how the physical cosmos fit into it. It is a great and important task to come to terms with what we really think when we think of God. Most hindrances to the faith of Christ actually lie I believe, in this part of our minds and souls. We should, to begin with, think that God leads a very interesting life. And that He is full of joy. Undoubtedly, He is the most joyous being in the universe. He goes on to say that while He was teaching in South Africa some time ago, a young man took me out to see the beaches near his home in Port Elizabeth. I was totally unprepared for the experience. I had seen beaches, or so I thought, but when we came over the rise where the sea and the land opened up to us, I stood in stunned silence and then slowly walked towards the waves. Words cannot capture the view that confronted me. I saw space and light and texture and color and power that seemed hardly of this earth. Gradually, there crept into my mind the realization that God sees this all the time. He sees it, experiences it, knows it from every possible point of view. This and billions of other scenes like and unlike it in this and billions of other worlds. Great tidal waves of joy must constantly wash through his being. It is perhaps strange to say, but suddenly I was extremely happy for God and thought I had some sense of what an infinitely joyous consciousness he is, and of what it might have meant for him to look at his creation and find it very good. We, pl- we pay a lot of money to get a tank with a few tropical fish in it, and never tire looking at their brilliance and their iridescence and marvelous forms and movements, but God has seas full of them, which he constantly enjoys. I can hardly take in these beautiful little creatures one at a time. This is what we must think when we hear theologians and philosophers speak of him as a perfect being. This is his life. Now Jesus himself was and is a joyous, creative person. He does not allow to continue thinking of our Father who fills and overflows space 
as a morose and miserable monarch, a frustrated and petty parent, or a policeman on the prowl. One cannot think of God in such ways while confronting Jesus' declaration, He that has seen me has seen the Father. One of the most outstanding features of Jesus' personality was precisely an abundance of joy. This he left as an inheritance to his apprentices, that their joy might be full. John 15.11 So we must understand that God does not love us without liking us. Amen. Through gritted teeth, as Christian love is sometimes thought to do, rather out of an eternal, uh, out of the eternal freshness of His perpetual, perpetually self-renewed being, the heavenly Father cherishes the earth and each human being upon it. The fondness, the endearment, the unstingingly affectionate regard of God toward all his creatures is the natural outflow of what he is to the core, which we vainly try to capture with our tired, uh, with, uh, with our tired by indispensable old word love. Joyous being, the most joyous being on the planet, We rarely think about God that way. The hymn that we sang to morning, I just wanted to take a minute and read that. We're going to be heavy on quotes today because I feel like so many other people have such a deeper grasp on joy than I do, and it's really good stuff. We just sang, Joy to the world, the Lord is come. Let earth receive her king. Let every heart prepare him room in heaven and nature sing. In heaven and nature sing. In heaven and nature sing. Joy to the earth, the Savior reigns. Let men their songs employ while fields and floods, rocks, hills, and plains repeat the sounding joy. Repeat the sounding joy. Repeat, repeat the sounding joy. No more let sins and sorrows grow, nor thorns infest the ground. I love this. He comes to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. Far as the curse is found. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove the glories of his righteousness and wonders of his love. And wonders of his love. Isaac Watts wrote this hymn, Not for Christmas. Did you know that? That when Isaac Watts penned this hymn way back in the 1700s, that he was writing about the second coming of Christ, not the incarnation. And oftentimes in the early church, Advent was no more than a waiting for the second coming of Christ. The focus was less on the incarnation and Jesus coming out as a baby and more so was focused on when Jesus comes to rule the earth and reign over the new heavens and new earth. And so when Isaac Watts penned this hymn, he penned it in a certain way right off the bat to let us know where his mind and his heart were focused during the season of Advent as well. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. We don't say joy to the world, the Lord has come. We say joy to the world, the Lord is come. In the present, 
the now and the not yet. And we'll talk about the kingdom and how that flows into joy here in a minute. But I wanted to take a minute and read the Christmas story and allow our hearts and our minds to center around this thing of joy and what makes this season um, so special when it comes to talking about joy or experiencing joy. Because in fact, every season for the, Christ, for the Christian should look like Advent. Advent is a Latin word that means to approach or to wait. Every season should look like Advent for joyful Christians. And we'll unpack that a little bit more here in a second. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinus was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea, to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. Can you hear Linus's voice? Every time I read this part, I hear Linus's voice in my head. Chuck Schultz for the win. And here's the key verse, verse 10 and 11 we're going to focus on this morning. But the angel said to them, do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find the baby in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and had gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told about the child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. Verse 10, do not be afraid. Isn't it wonderful that the first time that the gospel, the good news of Jesus, I mean, this is the gospel. Verse 10 is the gospel. Theologians will spend their lives trying to answer that question. What is the gospel? People, send, people spend years searching for the answer to this question. What is the gospel? Verse 10 is the gospel of Jesus Christ. Verse 10 tells us, 
But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He's the Messiah. He's the Lord. Jesus is born. Jesus is Lord. Now, the gospel might encompass a lot of things. The gospel might encompass or include taking care of the poor which we should think about, taking care of the homeless, the widow, the orphan. But that's not the totality of the gospel. The gospel might encompass or include God's acceptance of us and even God's grace to us. But I'm here to tell you this morning that that's not all the gospel is. The gospel is right here in verse 11 that today a Messiah has been born. He's the Lord. Jesus is Lord. And this is the gospel that brings uh, good news of great joy. The Greek word for great joy, the Greek word for great is mega. Mega joy. And a lot of times when we think about this scene with the shepherds who are being told this gospel, this good news, we have the total wrong idea of what's going on here. Many commentators will agree. Let me just set the scene for you of what really happened that night. We have this idea that when the angels show up, they're like these little fairies with soprano voices speaking to like grown-up men shepherds. Completely wrong. Most shepherds, and still today, are who? Children. They're children. And what flocks are they taking care of? of? Think about this. Where are they? They're in Bethlehem. And what is a couple of months away? Ah, chills. They're looking over the Passover lamb flocks of sheep outside of Bethlehem, when mighty angel warriors appear in the sky, too many to count, and say, your Passover lamb is born today in the town of David, and his name is Jesus Christ. Amen. That is good news of great joy for any and all who hear it. Any and all who hear it. That today, Jesus is Lord. That's the gospel. And the first time that the gospel is preached, what comes out of the angels' mouths is do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. I love that. Yeah, Christian community should look like living in Advent all of the time, waiting and watching and expressing the kingdom as it grows and expands. And joy, this joy that the angels are expressing towards the shepherds who later will then run around like crazy kids in the city of Bethlehem and proclaim this message. Can you imagine shepherds, teenagers, kids, running throughout the town, trying to express what they just saw, and grown-ups maybe seeing a flash of light out in the field 
accepting from these kids what is going on. Just what in the world is going on? This good news of great joy is deeper than an emotion or a feeling. It's an inner condition of the heart of Jesus that we take on and into ourselves, our very lives, as his disciples. Deeper than joy, yet it includes happiness, sure. A lot of preachers like to say, well, joy is not happiness, it's so much deeper, but I think Jesus was a pretty happy person. I mean, they said he ate and drank with sinners. He must have been pretty pleasant to be around. Pretty happy. Unnerving at times. Uncomfortable, awkward maybe. But happy. And so I'm not, I don't think at this point in my life I'm too ready to say that joy is so much different from happiness. Maybe there's a little bit of both in each of the other. So how do we cultivate it then? How do we grow and mature in joy? A lot of times we think of it as a feeling or emotion. So we think about it as fleeting, and sometimes it could be, I suppose. But I think as well it's a fruit of the Spirit, so it's something that we can grow in, right? You can grow in being a joyful person. Can you grow in being a more kind person, a more generous person? I suppose it's fair to say that you can grow and mature in what it means to be a joyful person. There's room for all of us to grow in becoming more joyous, more joyful, especially when we look around and see what shape the world is in today. We should stick out. Oh, I'm giving away too much. Too soon. So how do we do it? How do we grow? How do we mature in joy? Well, I'm not too big on steps, um, you know, like top five steps, but I felt like God gave me this verse in Philippians, which you'll be familiar with most likely. It's Philippians 4, verses 4 through 9, where Paul outlines what it looks like to, um, to live the Christian life filled with joy. And he gives us three little pointers that I wanted to run through really quickly on how to cultivate and grow joy in our lives. If you wanted to take notes, you're welcome to take notes. If you didn't, well, you're welcome to not take notes as well. Paul writes this, Rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Don't be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace, the shalom of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, Whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put into practice. And the God of peace will be with you. 
First step to cultivate or to grow or mature joy in our lives is to give thanks, to be grateful, to be grateful. This is foundational. And the voices that I listen to most in my lives are those, um, they're mostly older men, I'll note, who remind me the critical importance of having a foundation of gratitude in my life, who remind me or encourage me to be grateful for the people in my life, for the things, the blessings, and sorrows that God brings into my life, for the weight that I carry on my shoulders, the sadness, and also the joy. Those are the kind of voices that, um, that lead me to becoming a more grateful more joyous person. Foundationally, to become a more joyous person, to be more filled with the joy of Jesus. Because remember, Jesus said in John 15, He wants His joy to be in you and your joy to be complete. How many of us this morning could say we have complete joy? None of us. And so we can all practice gratitude. And that could look different for each one of us. And it's not something that's done like over the next day or two. It's not something that's practiced for like the next week or even the next decade. We're talking about a lifetime building into our rhythm a practice of gratitude, a habit of gratitude. Just by way of reference or example, one thing that I've been doing over the course of December is my home screen has this pretty little mountain, pretty little mountain photograph on it. But I made this little graphic there. You probably can't see it from there. But um, it's got the number 21 on the bottom, and it says three things that I'm grateful for today. Around about the turn of November, I was finding myself just complaining and grumbling about any, every, anything and everything. Do you ever find your, you guys wouldn't mess with that at all, only me. But just... negative and complaining and grumbling just about everything. Ugh! The sun's going down at 4.30 in the afternoon. Ugh! The Browns lost again. Ugh! I can't beat this. Or, ugh, I don't know how to control this. Or, ugh, I can't work with these people. I don't know what to do. Grumble, 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 grumble. Groveling, groveling. And I just sense the Holy Spirit speaking to my life. Hey, what are you grateful for, Evan? I know all about what you're not grateful for. (laughs) And so one little thing that I've been doing is just looking at my phone, because what's the first thing we look at when we wake up? Our phones. And so putting that on my home screen, I mean, I guess it shouldn't be. Again, you guys wouldn't do that. That's just me who looks at my phone first thing in the morning. Um, But just to be reminded that to cultivate joy, it starts with being grateful. And being grateful is something that I want to do over my, I want to grow in over my lifetime. And as we become more grateful people, what happens is that Jesus' joy is welcomed to that place. We'll talk about that in the third step. But the first step is to give thanks, to be grateful. And what better time than now to be grateful? Do you know when Thanksgiving, which we just celebrated, 
was initiated. It was initiated by President Lincoln in a time of deep division and suffering and death and brothers taking up arms against each other in a little thing called the Civil War. And so Lincoln thought it would be a great idea for us as a nation to celebrate this feast we call Thanksgiving. And so what better time than now to implement a habit or a rhythm or a practice of just becoming grateful, practicing gratitude, sending a thank you note, a thank you text, a phone call, maybe speaking out loud in the morning to God in your prayers, thank you, God. Thank you that you woke me up this morning and you put breath in my lungs. Even that is a gift from you. Thank you, Lord. This practice, we have to renew our minds to train us to speak this new language of gratitude. Like a new language. Thank you. That feels good to say. Thank you, God. So give thanks. Um, Oh, yeah. Oh, Karl Barth, amazing theologian, said, joy is the simplest form of gratitude. And I would say vice versa on that one, Karl Barth. Joy is the simplest form of gratitude. Gratitude is the simplest form of joy. Kind of like siblings in that way. Second step is to draw near to God in prayer. Paul says, uh, rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again, rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. The Lord is near. One way to cultivate joy is to draw near to God in prayer. Where do we find joy? Psalm 16 tells us that joy is found in Jesus' presence, in God's presence. And we experience God's presence in prayer. Prayer is not just a monologue or a laundry list of us expressing what's wrong or what's right. It's a dialogue. Prayer is meant to be a dialogue with God. And when we draw near to God, we're told in Scripture that He draws near to us. Joy is found in the person of God. And pleasures at his right hand, we're told. Eternal pleasures at his right hand. The most joyous person on the planet in Psalm 16. That's why Psalm 16 was such a a popular verse throughout history to have inscribed on your tombstone. Eternal pleasures at your right hand. Finally, face to face with God himself. So we cultivate joy by becoming grateful people, by giving thanks, and by drawing near to God in prayer. And then lastly, by renewing our minds, by curating our mind stream. Paul says this, he says, think about, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable. If anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. God begins to renew our minds. When we begin to think about whatever is pure, whatever is right, whatever is noble, we're actually re... Our brains, evolutionary biologists will tell you this. They'll tell you that there is a neuroplasticity to your brain. We would call it, in Paul's words, the renewing of our mind. 
And what is happening here, when Paul says to think about such things, lovely, pure, admirable, noble, and right things, what's happening here is that he's saying, your brain needs to be rewired because the world is hardwired to think about things that are ignoble, not noble. Things that are evil, not right. Things that are ugly, not beautiful. And Paul is saying, when you begin to think about these things in your mind, who was it, the theologian, that said, the mind is such a powerful place, the mind, the heart. When scripture talks about the mind, it's like this total head and heart thing. And some theologians said that, like, the mind is so powerful, it can make a heaven out of a hell and a hell out of a heaven. So when we think about such things that are lovely, good, true, right, pure, admirable, we're allowing the kingdom to come for Jesus to shape us, to look more like himself. And I guarantee you, not my, you don't need my guarantee, right here in scripture, when we think about these things, we'll become more joy-filled people. Listen, 2021, it's funny to think about that 2022 is right around the corner, this new calendar year, and with that, whatever you think about when you think about 2022 coming around. But we've been given, as followers of Jesus, I was thinking about this this week and just praying through it, how through the course of this past year and a half, we've been given this once-in-a-lifetime opportunity this chance to enlarge our hearts toward joy. And here's why I think that. Here's why I think that. And it may seem a little bit ridiculous to you, but I'd ask that you'd sit with it with God. Here's why it's a a once-in-a-lifetime chance to enlarge our hearts towards joy, to grow our soul's capacity for joy. Because we've just lived through a time and are going through a time that has included great suffering. And did you know that that is where God does his best work? If there's one way to enlarge our hearts towards joy, it's to walk through suffering. to walk, toward, walk through suffering. And those of you who have seen some of that in your life, I see you nodding with me. Yep. Because it's both, isn't it? It's both joy and sorrow. They're both kind of intermixed with one another. But there's no time... I would even say there, there probably will not be another time in all of our lifetime, when we're talking about the present reality of, objectively of which we all experience right now, of an opportunity for the church, the people of God, to enlarge their hearts with joy. This is the time. Bono, a friend of mine from Ireland, Met him at that studio that one day. That was fun. Bono's a pretty joyful person. I've looked into his eyes before, and he smiled at Luca 
as he smiled at Luca. There was a deep well of soulfulness there that was happening, that I was connecting with. And, and Bono said that joy is an act of defiance. Sit with that for a minute. Joy is an act of defiance. Or let's hear it from the brother James. Brother James says this, Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. Let perseverance finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Consider it pure joy, James says, because the joy will outweigh the sorrow because you're consenting to the work of God in your life. Once in a lifetime opportunity right now to enlarge your heart, my heart, towards the joy of Jesus. There will never be another time like this Oh, sure, there'll be sorrows, there'll be evil, there'll be what's wrong with the world and years to come. But I think, you know, I'm not, I think other people think this way too, so it's not like some prophetic utterance, but I think this time on the face of the earth is unique. Or you heard it from the media, unprecedented, unprecedented. And they are picking up. They are picking up wisps of prophecy there. Because God is speaking something now on the face of the earth that is unique. And speaking to the church right now. And calling the church to certain things and waking the church up to living in certain ways that have been absent for a long time. And it's a good thing. It's a good thing. It doesn't feel too great, but it's going to be good. It's going to usher in more joy. So this is a unique time, and joy is an act of defiance. And I always like to tell this story around Advent, and I don't know why I like to tell it around Advent, but to close, I wanted to tell you a story about a few friends of mine. And you may have friends who have experienced a similar thing about what joy and hope really looks like. And I always think about them during Advent. Dear, dear friends of ours, and Sarah, I don't know why I think about them during Advent, but I always do. Um, In Augusta, we were just so privileged and honored to do life with this young couple. They had moved um, for employment to Augusta, Georgia, when we lived down there. And we had the honor of doing life with them for five or so years. And still great friends, dear friends to this day. Um, Their names are Robin and Derek. And they'd been married for a while and just a wonderful young couple. And she was on the worship team and they were in our small group and just, you know, life on life stuff. They'd invite us over for low country boils down south. Ugh, it was beautiful. And they'd been married for a while and they they couldn't get pregnant. And they had, the, they had some means with them to actually travel just all around the states looking for a doctor who could figure this thing out. And no one could figure it out. And it was the cry of their hearts to have kids, you know. And they just couldn't get pregnant. And we'd pray for them at group. And we'd, and we'd, um, we'd pray that they would get pregnant. And all of a sudden, they couldn't. And then one... One day, in their joy, they came to our small group and they said, we found a a doctor in New York who thinks he knows what's going on. And he did. And they got pregnant. 
And not only that, she was doubly blessed, and they were pregnant with twins. And so as they journeyed the pregnancy, and they went, went along in weeks, something didn't seem quite right. And around about the 35th, 36th week, when was it? It was really early. It was earlier than 35. Um, the, it was a boy and a girl. And the boy's water broke, and the girl's did not. And so she had to deliver. And Samuel and Abigail were born the night before Easter, and I was set to lead worship the next morning, you know, singing about Jesus coming back from the grave and that Jesus is alive. And Samuel, his heart beat for about 10 minutes or so, and he passed away. And Abigail lived. And she's beautiful. How old is Abigail now? She's six, seven, eight. My goodness. She's eight years old and she's beautiful and thriving and healthy. And Robin takes time still to this day. And I believe there's like a ministry that's growing out of this at Vineyard Augusta to go to the NICU in Augusta, Georgia, and to minister to expecting moms who have lost children or who have um, babies who are addicted to substance and just to minister to these moms. Eight years later. And I think about the joy and the sorrow and the complexity of that moment in their lives. And I always think about it around Christmas and around Advent because I suppose it's a reminder, their story is a reminder that joy and suffering are often intermingled together. The suffering of what Samuel's life meant for 10 minutes to lose him and the joy of this little girl Abigail who is just so filled with joy, always like a huge smile on her face is an example of the kingdom in itself. It's like this picture of the kingdom of the now and the not yet. And the hope with which we as Christians can say, as Robin and Derek say, we will be reunited with Samuel one day. Forever. In eternity. Even though Samuel was lost, that he is with Jesus, he's with the Lord. And one day, and this is where joy and hope sort of hold each other's hands because we have joy in this present moment. Though we're going through many trials, like James says, but we have hope for the moment to come. In that joy, we find hope for the moment to come. When one day Robin and Derek will be reunited with Samuel. 